This is the Daily Signal podcast for Monday, February 1st. I'm Robert Bluey. And I'm Virginia Allen. On today's show, Rob talks with Heritage Foundation Senior Research Fellow Ryan Anderson about the new role he will be stepping into as president of the Ethics and Public Policy Center. Ryan's work and research on issues related to the family is truly groundbreaking. He's authored a number of books, including When Harry Became Sally, Responding to the Transgender Moment. We will certainly miss Ryan here at Heritage, but we wish him all the best as he moves on to this new role at the Ethics and Public Policy Center. Also on today's show, we read your letters to the editor and share a good news story about the one way in which the International Fellowship of Christians and Jews is helping the poor and elderly across Israel this winter. Before we get to today's show, we want to tell you about the most popular resource on the Heritage Foundation website, the Guide to the Constitution. More than 100 scholars have contributed to create a unique line-by-line analysis of our Constitution. The guide is intended to provide a brief and accurate explanation of each clause of the Constitution as envisioned by the framers and as applied in contemporary law. If you want to gain a deeper understanding of our founding document, visit heritage.org constitution or simply search for Heritage Guide to the Constitution. Now stay tuned for today's show coming up next. We are joined on the Daily Signal podcast today by Ryan Anderson. He's my longtime colleague at the Heritage Foundation, who today starts a new role as president of the Ethics and Public Policy Center. Ryan, welcome and congratulations on your new position. Thank you. It's um, a pleasure to be on the podcast. It's um, it's a little sad to no longer be an official member of the Heritage family, but but the Heritage family is a forever family. So I, I feel like even if my email address has a different, you know, at, um, uh, I'm still part of the same team. So it's a pleasure to be with you. Well, that's that, well said. And you, you've been a longtime supporter of the Daily Signal and our work. So, uh, so we are certainly grateful. Uh, can you tell us to begin a little bit more about the Ethics and Public Policy Center for listeners who might not be as familiar and what you hope to accomplish there as its president? Sure. So um, EPPC, frequently it goes by that, the acronym uh, EPPC. Uh, it was started three years after Heritage was. So Heritage was founded in 1973. Um, EPPC was founded in 1976. And it's an explicitly Judeo-Christian uh, think tank. It, 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 right in the mission statement, it says, you know, it's the nation's premier Judeo-Christian uh, public policy think tank um, dedicated to applying the Judeo-Christian moral tradition um, to contemporary questions of public policy. Um, and EPPC has played a role in foreign policy um, Back during the Cold War, they were uh, very involved in uh, the Reagan administration in defending America's interests. They played a huge role in some of the bioethics debates during the Bush administration. Many of uh, the President's Council on Bioethics uh, staff members uh, decamped to EPPC after their service in the government. Um, Ed Whalen has been the president uh, uh, for the past 17 years, and I think no one does more as like a court watcher um, than Ed, maybe besides John Malcolm and you know our Mies Center colleagues, but they've been very much on top of judicial appointments, judicial activism. And what I hope to accomplish at EPPC is just to continue building on the strong foundation that my predecessors created. There are going to be huge challenges for people who take the Judeo-Christian moral tradition seriously in the Biden administration. Uh, while Biden you know, professes to be a devout Catholic, uh, we're, 
you know, a week into his now, now I guess what a week and a half into his administration. And uh, he doesn't seem to be governing uh, like a devout Catholic. In fact, he seems to have already um, uh, issued some executive orders and, you know, rescinded some policies uh, that would have upheld truths about human dignity, truths about uh, creation, truths that we can know both through revelation and through reason. Um, so the last thing I'll say about this is that EVPC is also a natural law uh, think tank. So even for, you know, listeners um, of, of the Heritage podcast um, who aren't particularly religious themselves, um, you can know many of these things through reason. Uh, and, you know, what I've done for the past nine years at Heritage has been showing, uh, I hope, how faith and reason go together on so many of these issues of public policy, whether it was about marriage or about life or about religious liberty, now most recently about gender identity. Um, and I hope to continue doing that work just with a different email address. Ryan, it's uh, so important that you stay engaged and focused on those issues. And I'm so glad to hear you say that. You know, also at the time of the announcement, you spoke about uh, helping to shape the future of conservatism. And obviously, there's so much at stake uh, in this day and age. Where do you see conservatism heading in the future? And what ho do you hope to to bring to that uh, discussion at uh, EPPC? Sure. I mean, so, so it strikes me that one of the um, important lessons to learn from the Trump administration was um, Trump's willingness to defend the basket of deplorables, right? To use Hillary Clinton's language for, you know, the the, the millions of Americans um, that she thought were um, uh, deplorable. And Trump, you know, so many Republicans, so many conservatives uh, run away from those sorts of battles. They're, they're embarrassed by um, their base. They're embarrassed by ordinary Americans who believe what Americans had always believed uh, about life, about marriage, about gender, about all these issues. And it strikes me that Trump was, you know, willing to defend them. Uh, and if you look at what his administration did, what, you know, um, uh, what so many of, you know, former heritage colleagues who went into the administration, someone like Roger Severino did at HHS was that they stood up uh, and defended those, uh, those citizens uh, and their values. And it strikes me that that needs to be a central part of um, any conservatism that has a future. Um, that if we give up on, you know, some basic truths, um, declaration truths, right, that we're, um, uh, cr you know, we're, we're, we're created equal and endowed by our creator with certain unalienable rights, and that first among those is the right to life, right? If, if conservatism gives up on any of the um, so so-called social issues, right, whether it's life, whether it's marriage, religious liberty, sexuality, uh, it's not going to have a future, Um you might remember shortly after the 2016 election, there was that scatter plot that everyone was you know, sharing on social media. And all of the red dots were firmly above um, uh, the top bottom dividing line. They were firmly in the kind of like socially, culturally conservative uh, uh, segment. And so the, the idea of you know, um, socially liberal but fiscally conservative, which so many um, conservative leaders and um, kind of inside the beltway pundits uh, embrace. There's no voter base there. Uh, and there's just, uh, it, it just also, it's just not true to what conservatism is. So that's going to be part of it. And then I think the other thing is when you look at that scatter plot on the right to left axis, they were right in the middle. Um, and so I think here's going to be the challenge of um, how do conservatives embrace markets, embrace property rights, embrace trade, um, well, without going um, uh, to, to kind of any extremes, uh, I like to quote um, George Will uh, in, in a book that he wrote back in the early 1980s, um, Statecraft as, uh, as Soulcraft. He said, 
um, the most the four most important words in politics are up to a point. Uh, and so I think that's going to be the challenge for conservatives to say, all right, we embrace markets, we embrace uh, trade, we embrace private property, but all of those things up to a point. And then the real debate is going to be, what is that point? Um, I had written a dissertation while at Heritage titled, Neither Liberal Nor Libertarian. Uh, and, and I think thinking through um, what is a conservative approach um, to supporting families, to supporting blue collar workers, to supporting kind of a, a working class agenda, which is the other side of Trump um, that I think resonated when he spoke of the forgotten Americans. Um, I don't think he delivered um, very many policies on that, right? And so that's why it really is a question of, you know, which policies are best going to serve working class Americans, are best going to uh, promote family formation, et cetera, et cetera. But it strikes me that those two parts um, need to be there, a working class economic agenda with a, a conservative social agenda, that that's a, a, a winning conservatism. Well, Ryan, over the course of, of your nine years at Heritage, uh, we've we've had a lot of these uh, these conversations and debates. You also worked on so many important issues. Uh, you authored or co-authored books. You even had your work cited by Supreme Court justices. And on issues that you mentioned earlier, like religious liberty and marriage, uh, we saw uh, some some big decisions uh, in our in our society. Uh, what message do you have for our listeners, given given the threats that we do see from the left today? Whew. I mean, that, that's a that's a big question because um, the threat from the left today, uh, no one should in any way uh, minimize them. Um, they're 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 very serious threats. Um, President Biden, back when he was campaigning, said after after the Little Sisters of the Poor won their third Supreme Court victory, that if he were elected president, he'd take us back to where we were before the Hobby Lobby decision. Um, uh, President Biden, when he was campaigning, said that transgender rights are a fundamental human right and there's no room for compromise. Right? And, and he's governing this way. And so, um, you know, I, th I think my message for listeners is don't allow the left to bully you into silence um, because this is one of their tactics, right? They call you a hater. They call you a bigot. They say you're a basket of deplorable. Um, they say that you're a bitter clinger, right? They, they, they try to intimidate you, to silence you, to cancel you. And it only works um, if you go silent, right? And, and this is what I loved about Heritage is no one ever silenced me. No one ever censored me. Um, I was told that so long as what I said was true, uh, accurate, you know, I didn't manipulate the facts or the data, cook the books, whatever, that I would never run into problems. And I never did. Right? Like, Rob, you never, you know, no one from the comms department, the development department, the coalitions, no one ever said you can't say that. And, and I think that's what we need. That, that's, that would be the message to, to our listeners is don't allow someone to tell you you can't say that. If what you're saying is true and you're saying it uh, in a charitable spirit, have at it. Uh, what we need right now are people who will witness to the truth, uh, people who will not go silent, people who will not be intimidated uh, and, and, and realize that this is a generational uh, struggle. Um, it's not going to be decided within the next four years. It's not going to be decided by the next election, the next vote on Capitol Hill. Uh, we're talking about our children and our grandchildren. Um, and, and, you know, I take, um, you know, last Friday uh, was the virtual March for Life. It wasn't held um, uh, 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 in person this year because of COVID, but there were people 40 some years ago who committed to bearing witness to the truth about the dignity of unborn human life. And they made it easier for me to be pro-life, right? It wasn't easy to be pro-life in the seventies. 
and they committed themselves to the difficult work of uh, building a culture of life. And now um, you see that you know it's much easier today to be pro-life than it is to be, for example, pro um, traditional marriage or pro kind of like biological sanity on some of the gender identity questions. Um, so that, that, that would be my message to, to our listeners. Um, don't go silent. Don't be intimidated. Don't allow yourself to be canceled. And, and focus on the long game. I think that that's so important, Ryan. Thank you for giving us that, that perspective and advice. That's, that's really helpful. You know, in, in this culture we do live in, though, which is, you know, the 24-7 news cycle, uh, you know, we, we've seen so much just happen in the last week and a half under, under the Biden administration. You've written a piece for The Daily Signal about uh, executive orders and, uh, and how some, some of those executive orders, maybe most of those executive orders, uh, run counter to the message of unity that he ran on. Uh, can you speak to the one that, that you specifically wrote about um, and explain uh, why Americans should be concerned about uh, these, these changes that he's made uh, with regard to transgender individuals? Sure. I mean, so on day one, you know, he gives a uh, um, an inauguration speech stressing unity and healing. And then that very afternoon, he issues an executive order uh, instructing all of his agencies, all of the various departments of um, the executive branch of government um, to interpret sex to mean gender identity and then to have all of their policies follow in line. And he explicitly said this should apply to school bathrooms, school locker rooms, and school athletic programs. It should apply to housing, and it should apply to medicine. Now, what does that actually mean? Uh, this means that we're going back to where we were in the Obama administration. In the very last months of the Obama administration, they said the word sex now means gender identity. Um, the Department of Justice and the Department of Education sent a dear colleague letter to all of the nation's schools saying that they had to do their bathroom, locker room, and sports policies based on subjective identity rather than objective biology, meaning a high school boy who identifies as a girl had a civil right to go into the girls' locker room to play on the girls' sports teams. Um, you know, one of the things that I'm most proud about during my time at Heritage were, you know, the events that we were able to host where we brought in uh, people who disagreed with us on so many issues, but said, we can partner, we can work together on the gender identity issue. Uh, and, and, you know, we had people who identified as radical feminists. Uh, we had LGBT leaders who said that the LGB is different than the T. Uh, speaking, you know, at the Heritage podium, the Heritage platform. And uh, I think those alliances are going to be important. Uh, and they could see uh, people who disagree with us about taxes and trade and foreign policy, people who disagree with us about marriage could see the threat of these gender identity uh, policies, the threat to women's privacy, to women's safety, uh, to women's uh, equality, and then also the threat to children. Uh, and so that, that's where I want to mention, you know, the healthcare part of this is that um, I remember one time we had someone speak at Heritage and see, she was the first lesbian readmitted to the military after Don't Ask, Don't Tell was lifted. And she said, my being a lesbian never did anything to the body of a child. Uh, and what she was concerned about was the transgender part when you get to the medical aspect, puberty blocking drugs for kids, double mastectomies being performed on teenage girls, uh, uh, testosterone therapy for teenage girls. Um, this is all going to be part of the Biden uh, agenda right now. And so um, it's, it's a very divisive, very extreme, very radical uh, policy proposal that the vast majority of Americans are not on board with. And you need not be a conservative and you need not be religious uh, to see that. Um, Heritage partnered with, with atheists, with 
uh, with uh, radical feminists, with LGB leaders. And I think we're going to have to continue doing that. That's important work. I, um, I have full confidence that Heritage will continue doing that. The other thing I'll mention is that at the end of last week, um, uh, on St. Thomas Aquinas's feast day, uh, last Thursday, our Catholic president uh, rescinded the Mexico City policy. And the Mexico City policy was a policy that every uh, a Republican administration, pro-life administration, has put in place, saying that you can't use uh, taxpayer money to help pay for uh, abortion overseas. And President Biden rescinded that policy. Um, so on both the um, abortion issue and on some of the uh, uh, sexuality and gender issues, uh, we're seeing a pretty radical agenda coming out of um, our current administration. We certainly are, Ryan. Uh, that is that is so true. And thank you for, for explaining uh, a couple of those issues in more detail. One of the things that I admire about you is a willingness to engage directly, whether it's on social media, TV, or college campuses, and also to look for others who may not agree with us 100% uh, on all the issues, but on, on particular things do understand uh, and, and are willing to come together and have those important conversations. Can you speak about why that is important to you and why other conservatives uh, should embrace that same kind of approach when it comes to dealing with some of these public policy issues. Sure. I mean, so so this is, I mean, I just think this comes out of my upbringing. Um, I, I'm one of five boys and uh, my brothers and I, uh, you know, we would argue about stuff uh, at the dinner table. You know, um, we still do. We have a family text message list and, you know, we, we, we have added on the, it's actually a, a signal uh, list so, so that it's encrypted. Um, but, you know, one of my brothers voted for Bernie Sanders. You know, one was a Jeb supporter. One was a Rubio supporter. One was a Trump. Like we, uh, during the primaries, like we don't see eye to eye on everything moral and political, but we love each other and we're able to have conversations uh, with each other. I went to a very progressive um, K through 12 uh, Quaker school in Baltimore and the vast, 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 vast majority of my friends uh, were left-leaning, socially progressive. You know, once we uh, were seniors in high school, they registered as Democrats. Um, but we were still friends up until a couple years ago. Um, uh, you probably remember that at a certain point, the, the Washington Post did a, um, a front-page profile of me in the run-up to the Obergefell decision, and then my high school more or less canceled me. Uh, the high school had posted a link to the story on their Facebook page, and then by the end of the day, they took it down and they apologized because of the criticism they received. And I mean, to a certain extent, it's kind of like water off a duck's back. It, it doesn't get to me. It, it, it is a little sad just in the sense of, I um, wanna do my part to say, look, we can disagree without being disagreeable. We can be friends, we can be neighbors. My next door neighbor, I, I live on a gravel road now. My next door neighbors, they were flying a resist banner all throughout the Trump presidency. They had a bumper sticker on their car that said no more fake presidents. Uh, when I went to vote, they were working uh, the Democrat table uh, outside of our polling station. But we've been great friends. Um, I've been living here now for a year and a half. And every time I get my tractor stuck in the mud, they tow me out. Every time I have a question about how to actually like take care of animals, they're there. Like it, They're great neighbors. And we've been able to um, share meals and share drinks. And it just strikes me that that's so important. Um, and, and what this means is that as a policy person, I mean, you and I work uh, uh, in the policy world, that we have to present ideas and arguments uh, in a way that is accessible to people who might not agree with us. And we have to do it in a spirit of charity, you know, where, where we're trying to be persuasive, not just trying to own the libs, right? I mean, there's a difference between 
um, just throwing red meat at your base and actually trying to persuade people who might not agree with you. Uh, and I think a lot of this just comes out of, you know, having a family that, you know, argues with each other, disagrees with each other, but loves each other, having gone to a school where, you know, everyone didn't think the way I thought, uh, but still being good friends with those people and now having neighbors where it's the same situation. And so um, I also think just, you know, a, a last thought on this is that this is going to be vitally important um, for the future of our country. It, it just strikes me that we're more polarized, more divided than ever. And we need to be able to uh, um, appreciate the commonalities that we do have and not politicize everything, not turn everything into you're either 100% with me or you're 100% against I, I, me. <laughs> Amen to that, because I, I think that uh, uh, not growing up with exactly the same circumstance, but certainly growing up with a, a family that had diverse um, political viewpoints, uh, I, it also pains me to see uh, some of the the challenges that that we face, not only with our friends and neighbors and, and even family members, but, but uh, you know, and I think this is why so many of us, when we heard President Biden speak about unity and healing. Uh, we we were hopeful, but uh, as you yourself said, I mean, actions speak louder than words, and so it it, it does require uh, it, you know some tough conversations, but it also requires sincerity and uh, and and not just you know getting up and, and talking on these 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 great uh, platitudes, but also actually following through. And so I, I applaud you for uh, for engaging in those those types of, of conversations, and I I you know. <laughs> agree with you that there's uh, there's much work that we can do. And I think conservatives in many respects are going to be the ones that have to lead uh, on this issue because um, uh, we we come at it with uh, with, I think, a sincere and genuine approach that uh, that treats people uh, with dignity and respect. And so so thank you for doing that. And, and Ryan, uh, one of my favorite memories of your time at the Heritage Foundation is when you um, have had the courage uh, to step into a forum with Piers Morgan and Susie Orman to debate um, marriage. And, uh, and obviously that, uh, that stands out as a, as a moment where, where I thought, here is somebody who uh, really you know, can talk about uh, what, what he believes in and the traditional values that, that we as conservatives uh, support so, so much and, and do so in a forum respectfully, um, even if you don't necessarily on the other side uh, you know, uh, have, um, have that same respect. But I wanted to ask you, as, as your parting words here on this interview, any memories or things that you'd like to share with our listeners about your time at Heritage or, or words of wisdom as you had, had forth to this new role at EPPC? Sure. So actually, that is my favorite memory from my time at, at Heritage as well. And so, I mean, let me, I mean, kind of share something with um, our, our listeners about that, because, you know, some people, they look at Heritage and, you know, there are all these like brilliant scholars who, you know, go on TV and do interviews and, you know, write articles and books. And what they don't realize is that like we have an entire team of people who are supporting us and equipping us to do that, um, that, you know, when I got to Heritage, I was um, ABD, all but dissertation in my graduate program. I had never spoken to a senator or a member of the House of Representatives before. I'm not even sure I knew the difference between a senator and a House member. And and, and it was our government relations team and, and Heritage Action for America that, you know, first took me to walk the halls of Congress to meet with members of Congress and their staff. I remember one time speaking with Senator Mike Lee while he was in his little bunker preparing to go on the Senate floor to give a speech. And he and I were talking about all the intricacies of the marriage litigation cases, right? And, and that just doesn't happen. It's because we have a, 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 an entire 
team of government relations people and heritage action people. The same thing's true for coalitions. Um, Bridget Wagner, you know, got me to speak in front of like every conservative group in America, right? And that just doesn't happen. It's because we have a great coalitions team that can connect you uh, with the different um, other groups in our movement. And then the same thing is true for, for communications. The, the Piers Morgan interview, the, the, the backstory on that, um, it was my second time ever going on TV. And the only reason it went well was that prior to that, my boss, Jennifer Marshall, said, you're used to speaking in paragraphs and pages, but when you do media, you're going to have to speak in sound bites. Like, you know, part of radio is that they only give you 20 to 30 seconds to answer before they cut you off. TV, they give you 10 to 15 seconds. And so, you know, Rob, as part of your team, you had uh, Beverly Hallberg at the time as like our media uh, coach. And I spent hours working with Beverly during doing media training. And then Jackie Anderson was the um, uh, uh, the kind of in-house person who prepared me specifically for the Piers Morgan uh, interview. And I, I remember there was, you know, questions, you know, is he ready for this? You know, can we put, you know, I was, I think I had only been at Heritage for less than a year at that point. And it's precisely because of all the stuff that goes on behind the scenes, right? That, that our listeners, our supporters, you know, wouldn't necessarily know about that then, you know, allows, you know, some of the, the, the research fellows to um, shine in this way. And all I remember that is Mike Gonzalez was the, was the VP of comms at this point. And, you know, he signed off in the interview. Um, I think it was Michelle Cordero who had booked it. Jackie Anderson and I then, you know, spent a little bit, you know, that afternoon doing kind of like mock interviews where she would pretend to be both Susie Orman and Piers Morgan. And then I took a train up to New York City. And as the train was pulling into Penn Station, I got a phone call from um, uh, the producer saying, just so you know, um, you know, there's going to be another guest tonight. And so you're not going to be seated at the table with Piers and Susie. You're going to be seated in a featured audience seat. But don't worry, no one from home will know that you're not seated at the table. It'll look like you're right next to them. And then as you know how it played out, like it was obvious that like the two of them were seated like up on a platform at the table and they were, you know, kind of like talking down to me, seated in the audience. At one point, they got the entire studio audience to boo me. And I thought that it had gone terribly. Uh, when I was done, I had my phone in airplane mode. And so when I finished, I was like, oh my gosh, I just embarrassed the Heritage Foundation. I'm going to get fired. Like this was terrible. And then once I take my phone off of airplane mode, it starts blowing up with text messages and emails congratulating me. And I'm like, did they watch a different interview? And I remember I got you know a nice phone call from my boss saying, you can never go back to academia. And I was like, oh, no, did I mess it up? And she's like, no, 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 you got to stay uh, in the fight. You can't just be a pure academic. Uh, I think my position at the time was it was like a one-year visiting fellowship. She's like, we're going to get this permanent. You're going to be, you know, at Heritage for as long as you want. And, and, and the rest was history, right? I mean, I think to a certain extent, Piers Morgan did more to help my career than anyone else. Um, but I just remember the outpouring of support from within the building. You know, the next day I got emails from... Uh, you know, our president at the time, Ed Fulner, the EVP, Phil Truluck, people who I had never even met before, because right? I still was in my first year at Heritage. Um, Rob, you wrote something like that very night for uh, the predecessor, predecessor of the Daily Signal, the Foundry, um, uh, kind of like defending me. And and it was this real, that, that was when I kind of like first knew like, yep, I'm part of the Heritage family. And, you know, this is going to be uh, something that lasts for a while. Um, so that's, that's really still my, my, my favorite memory. Um, and, and I guess like, you know, the parting word of advice there is just 
for, for our, our, our listeners is just realize that behind every kind of like expert at heritage, there's an entire team uh, that's equipping them and supporting them. Um, you know, whether it's the comms people, the government relations people, the coalitions people, none of us do this on our own. Uh, and, I, and I just think that's really important to stress, um, kind of like the unsung heroes who don't have their, uh, um, their name kind of in marquee, their, their, their uh, uh, face being plastered on stuff. But, you know, that's what I'm going to miss most, <laughs> I guess, is another way of saying it is all of the great colleagues. Well, you have I've been a great colleague. And thank you so much for, for recounting that story. We will make sure that our listeners can go and watch that interview with Pierce Morgan. Uh, we'll put a link in the show notes and, uh, and and also link to EPPC so they can find out a little bit more about the work that you'll be doing um, heading forward. Ryan Anderson, thank you so much uh, for, for all of the contributions you've made um, and uh, and for, for writing for the Daily Signal over these these past uh, past almost seven years now uh, that we've, we've had the Daily signal it's been great uh to work alongside you and look forward to keeping in touch and continuing to to stay in the fight for the foreseeable future it's going to be uh be a, a challenge um but we look forward to having strong partners like you to be able to to be successful thank you and and, and just on the daily signal uh a note you know I've, I've told the editors there that so long as they're willing to still publish my stuff you know i i, I fully intend to continue writing uh for the daily signal it's, it's a great outlet it's a great publication and so um, even though I won't be a full-time heritage uh, uh, staffer, you know I, I I fully continue to be writing for you guys. Uh, well, absolutely, we will. And, and Ryan, uh, I know our audience will be excited to hear that. So thank you uh, for your generosity in that, and and best wishes at EPPC and the the team that you uh, will be leading there. Uh, we wish you all the best. Thank you, Rep. If you're tired of high taxes, fewer healthcare choices and bigger and bigger government, it's time to partner with the most impactful conservative organization in America. We're the Heritage Foundation, and we're committed to solving the issues America faces. Together, we'll fight back against the rising tide of homegrown socialism, and we'll fight for conservative solutions that are making families more free and more prosperous. But we can't do it without you. Please join us at heritage.org. Thanks for sending us your letters to the editor. Each Monday, we feature our favorites on this show. Virginia, who do you have first? Sid Sokol writes, Dear Daily Signal, in my view, the primary catalyst for the ever-increasing deterioration of Western civilization and Judeo-Christian values is the phenomenon of social justice. The prevailing culture historically is the concept of legal justice. This is widely accepted as it should be. Social justice is a socialist concept based in abstract conjecture. And Stan Wickman of Westland, Michigan writes, Dear Daily Signal, in my humble opinion, the 1776 report by the President's Advisory 1776 Commission should also be inserted in every journalism curriculum in every college and university in the United States of America. The reporters, headline writers, and others who are tasked with creating sentences that will appear in print or on the air should be aware of the truth of our history. They must be made aware of our true history so it is in their minds however they decide to slant their reports and headlines. If you haven't read the report, please do. President Biden has to be inundated with requests to reinstall the commission by whatever name he thinks will save face so that the work they began can thrive and grow. I don't see it as a partisan issue. He should not either. 
our Declaration of Independence and our Constitution are under a severe threat. Your letter could be featured on next week's show, so send us an email at letters at dailysignal.com. What the heck is trickle-down economics? Does the military really need a space force? What is the meaning of American exceptionalism? I'm Michelle Cordero. I'm Tim Desher. And every week on the Heritage Explains podcast, we break down a hot-button policy issue in the news at a 101 level. Through an entertaining mix of personal stories, media clips, music, and interviews, we help you actually understand the issues. So do this. Subscribe to Heritage Explains on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts today. Virginia, you have a good news story to share with us on this Monday. Over to you. Thanks so much, Rob. Today's good news story takes us across the ocean to the nation of Israel. Winter is a challenging time for many of Israel's elderly who live in public housing. Some are faced with choosing to pay for heat or buy food. And this year is especially challenging as the pandemic is keeping many of the elderly living in isolation. The International Fellowship of Christians and Jews, also known as the Fellowship, saw the need across the nation of Israel to launch an operation to distribute winter kits to 10,000 elderly residents living in public housing. I recently spoke with Yael Eckstein, president of the Fellowship, and she explained that as the largest philanthropic organization in Israel, the Fellowship is committed to uniting Christians and Jews around the mission of serving those in need just as they are doing this winter. So this winter heating program, we're, we're, we're providing to 10,000 of Israel's poorest elderly who live in public housing, who oftentimes have to decide between paying for food or paying for medicine or paying for rent, that we're giving them a heated blanket, scarf, all different things, $100 to pay the heating bill, because so often it's not only that they don't have a heater, but they can't afford the heating bill, um, so that they can just Get, get through this winter, not only by staying alive, but also with some dignity. As Eckstein and the staff and volunteers of the International Fellowship of Christians and Jews have delivered packages to the elderly across Israel, they have discovered that many of these men and women are blessed to receive the kits and financial support. But they're even more blessed to know that there are people who truly care about them and have taken the time to visit them and listen to their stories. So many of these elderly are feeling so lonely. They haven't had any visitors in some of them over a year, that they haven't left their house, that they are on their last foot of despair. And so we decided to do that when we went into these very poor cities, into these housing projects of very poor, where poor elderly in the public housing, we'd go in with a van. That's it, We call it our happiness van. And we're blasting happy music. And we have oftentimes a singer, which is an elderly who has a good voice and likes singing. We'll be singing some of the songs and they'll go to their windows and they'll be singing with us and clapping and we'll go and distribute the aid that way. And so um, it's really also about volunteers who are going and of course, following all guidelines, sitting with them on their porch while wearing masks, hearing their stories 
stories, hearing their struggles and just giving them that um, will to continue and to survive. And so um, recently, one of our one of our staff visited somebody named Rosanna, who's a 68 year old woman living alone. She has no family, no one to be with her. And with tears in her eyes, she said to us, thank you so much for the beautiful winter gift and the shopping vouchers that will help me, especially during this time. But most importantly, I want to give a huge thanks and a personal hug to all the people for the visits and all the sacrificial giving, which means so much to me because I'm all alone. And to me, that sums it up, just all the different parts of how impactful this program is. So powerful, just so good to hear about the good news that's happening all over our world. If you would like to learn more about the work of the International Fellowship of Christians and Jews, you can visit ifjc.org. Virginia, thanks so much for sharing that story. We certainly appreciate it. And we're going to leave it there for today. You can find the Daily Signal podcast on the Ricochet Audio Network. All of our shows are available at dailysignal.com slash podcasts. You can also subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or your favorite podcast app. And be sure to listen every weekday by adding the Daily Signal podcast as part of your Alexa flash briefing. And if you like what you hear, please take a moment and leave us a review and a five-star rating. It certainly means a lot to us, and it helps us spread the word to even more listeners. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at Daily Signal and Facebook.com slash The Daily Signal News. Have a great week. The Daily Signal podcast is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. It is executive produced by Rob Bluey and Virginia Allen. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Mark Guiney, and John Pop. For more information, visit DailySignal.com.